The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Fill in the blank in this phrase that I've heard from medical students. In a healthy person, urine is completely blank. Sterile. Wrong. Oh. Urine is not sterile. Riley. Wrong. That's not what that is what they say. say. <laughs> that is that is what people in general have said. I will fight you to be right. <laughs> you, you know what? I think that we can blame one particular film for this misconception. Okay. More than any other. What is it? Dodgeball. Definitely. Do you I feel re- like, not remember yeah. the I feel quote? Like that mis- I feel like that misconception. <laughs> is it necessary? I thought you were going to bring up like Man vs. Wild, no. which is not a movie, is but that was also... Is it for me to drink my own urine? No, but it's sterile and I like the taste. Direct <laughs> the- quote from that film. <laughs> urine is not sterile. It's just that the experiments that looked for bacteria in urine were only looking for aerobic bacteria. Hmm. In the 1970s, Rosalind Maskell, I think is how you pronounce her name, tested for anaerobic bacteria, reasoning that the bladder was a pretty anaerobic space, and found it. Maskell found that urine contains lactobacillus. Where do you also find lactobacillus? In the poop. In milk. Yeah. I was going to say yogurt. (laughs) I guessed. The poop, the vagina. I was going to say it's in never. (laughs) Yeah. In the nether regions. But Maskell's work was ignored in her day. She died in 2016, but lived to see her work validated. Right. I just thought that was interesting because I've heard that I've heard that urine is sterile, and then I came across this article. How did you find this article? I know, it was just in my what, feed what this week. You, what are you? What is your search history, Dave? I, <laughs> I don't want to know. It's probably Nobody, just like weird it's one of those questions things. that you can't have an answer to. The internet doesn't know who I am anymore. I think largely <laughs> thanks to my association with you people, the internet doesn't know me. It's You're hard it's, to trace. They think I'm a doctor. What is it about scientists named Rosalind? That their work is ignored. Oh, so many. Rosalind Franklin, she uh, assisted with the discovery of DNA. What, what? I, I think, okay, so I think that it is important to point out that it is a common misconception that she was passed over entirely for this. The real problem was, unfortunately, she passed away before the Nobel Prize was offered. She would have been on that Nobel Prize, but it is never offered posthumously. Ah. So, Seriously? Yeah. And so that is the reason that we forever associate not her and we feel like she's been slighted. She has not been slighted. She passed away before it could be received. That is not to say that her Did boss they didn't. Her? No. She died. <laughs> <laughs> to my knowledge, she died of, she died of cancer. So. Um, she that's not to say that her boss didn't ha, there wasn't some duplicity in him sharing information with francis and yeah, yeah. but it's not like the entire scientific community was like oh no a woman like this is 60 years after our girl oh gosh no, i forgot her name now rosalind franklin no the radon girl oh, oh marie curie, curie. curie. Yeah. this is 60 years after her she won not only two different Nobel prizes in two separate conf- fields like her daughter had already won a Nobel prize or two by this point so it's not like they were like totally shutting out women I'm still gonna say it's because it's a feminine name I you've think said, it's cause they murdered her you've said, <laughs> they gave her cancer on purpose <laughs> I will say though this is just a fun fact for those who love history nerds yeah Francis and Crick mm-hmm. invited her over to their lab because they were so excited to show the model that they had created and remember they won their prize for demonstrating the model the structure of dna we already knew that dna existed we already knew that this was how genetic information was being passed on they discovered the structure 
and they had a structure they built a model and they invited her over and they're like look it's perfect it makes perfect sense and it was instead of a double helix it was a triple helix uh. and she slammed on them for forgetting their basic chemistry on like how these bond angles would have to be in real life and how this was completely impossible and they were idiots and i think that kind of led to them <laughs> feeling slighted and then you taking might say her that they didn't have chemistry her. yeah they oh, didn't have you might chemistry. say that and that's why they murder <laughs> applause meandering in the margins of medicine it's the short coat podcast weird news fresh views helpful clues and interviews by students for students subscribe to our weekly show at the Welcome back to the Short Goat Podcast. It's the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. A production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP studio, some people you just can't ignore. He's difficult to look away from because of his charisma. It's M2 Jeff Goddard. I will admit I'm also difficult to look at. She's so authentic you can't help but pay attention. It's MD-PhD student Riley B. and Bush. That is so kind. And her boundless energy reminds me of one of those inflatable wiggly guys outside the tax prep office. It's M2 Nicole Hines. Sup, nerds? <laughs> Nicole, how's that old path externship treating you? Oh, I'm just living life, thriving, you know. That's, sit, it really sounds like it Sitting at a that. microscope, listening to music. Should we explain what the path externship is? There are different t- like types of externships and... The other ones for like radiology and anesthesiology are just like extra jobs that you work in the evening. While you also are a regular student. Yeah, while you're still doing your student duties. But the pathology externship here is a year out program where you basically pause your curriculum and just do rotations in pathology, mostly anatomic pathology. So the majority of the rotations are in surge path, GI path, and autopsy. And then you get to choose some electives to give it your own little flavor. So you're, I mean, you're doing stuff that actual pathologists do. Yeah, we're, we don't have like the same level of responsibility as the interns, but we're kind of treated like interns. Gosh, the most interesting thing I think I would say was some ass cancer. Yes. It Where is that the official diagnosis? In the ass. Rectal in the cancer. cancer. Yeah, I wrote on the okay. report. I was like, y'all got ass cancer. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and I took that to sign out totally. Just no. like that. I actually, I recognized that something looked off. I hadn't seen many rectal biopsies, but it was my attending that was like, yo, this is cancer. So... You cancer. Is that uh, most of what you're finding, cancer? Yeah. I okay. mean, on GI, it was a lot of polyps. And mm-hmm. by day two, I was like so good at recognizing tubular adenomas. My brain would be like, ta-da, because everybody abbreviates it TA. Yeah. Stupid little things like that. <laughs> but yeah, it's a lot of cancer. I mean, in the gross lab, when you're dealing with like wet specimens straight out of surgery, a lot of them are going to be for cancer. But then you'll have just your standard biopsies, other things like a number of the colon resections I was dealing with were for diverticulosis, just anything that gets removed from the body that needs to be analyzed will come across in slides. Will you just take us through, like, you get a specimen, you get a sample from someone, then what do you do? Like, what is, what are the, like, general steps from point A to microscope? So it has to be accessioned by the staff in the gross lab. 
and then either what does that mean well basically just put into the system to say we received a specimen a little paperwork yeah okay then it has to be grossed so either the pathology assistants who are just like saviors of the path world they do so much work that they don't get recognized for either they or the residents will gross it so describing it taking pictures if needed and then cutting it up to get what sections we want to see under the microscope that has to be fixed in formalin and it'll have a certain amount of time that it needs to be in that after that it goes over to the histo lab and the histotex will embed it in paraffin wax and then they will slice it really thin and put sections on a slide fix it to the slide and then it will be stained and the turnaround is kind of variable eventually it ends up at the hot seat where one of the fellows reviews it and does kind of a preliminary diagnosis or sorts it into what service needs to be looking at those slides i like the hot i like that use of that yeah, yeah. I, for some reason that strikes me as a good use of that word i like it it is it is a good one yeah. and then the different services look at the slides externs residents fellows review them and then sign out with an attending so sit down talk about what you saw they tell you what you should be seeing and then fill out the report fix the report and submit that or order more stains, other ancillary tests as necessary. Biggest misconception about pathologists? Pathologists are really cool and more social than you would think. That's a... So the misconception is pathologists are antisocial. And just uh, like to hide with their microscopes. Yeah, okay. Which is probably kind of true because that's how I feel I am. (laughs) But we also wear cool socks. (laughs) Who would be good in pathology? Who's like a good personality for a pathologist or just like interest wise? Who would go into pathology? I mean, if you love histology. Colorblind. That's not going to work for me. There are tons of colorblind pathologists. Yeah. I took a histology class for some reason in college. On a whim. What? I talked into the wrong What was your major? (laughs) I don't know. It was just like one of those like, no, I got time in my schedule. Ooh, histology. That sounds interesting. (laughs) He's got a BS and I've got time. Yeah. (laughs) You just learn the, it's a lot of pattern recognition. And so. It must be really hard at first. And then. I'm sure. I'm not colorblind, so I don't know the experience, but there are a handful of colorblind pathologists. I'm just thinking like I've seen a lot of, you know, like, well, I've seen slides. It's like. This purple thing and this red and this pink thing, pink thing yeah. they're totally different. And I'm like, no, they're not. Oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it when my professors are like, well, this one is quite obviously X thing. And I'm like, yeah, of course. I'm, yeah, obviously. So obviously. That is exactly now, what I, I will say I can read an ultrasound pretty well. <laughs> I can see the baby. Black and white. Yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> they're just like, that's a baby for sure. Yeah, totally a baby. I mean, there's so many subspecialties between anatomical and clinical path it attracts so many different types of people i'd say if you like being in the lab if you want to be on more of the diagnostic side while having a variable amount of clinical exposure you might like pathology if you like working with a similar group of people every day and not having to work with patients you might like pathology <laughs> um, like because on, on the clinical side, let's say for cytology, they actually go and like do the collections 
And so there still are opportunities to have direct patient contact. It's not all just hiding in your office with your microscope, but there is a lot of that. So I've always thought that pathology was like kind of a sleeper. It's really not. That's why I'm asking I mean, all these questions. There's, like, I there's like I don't so know about it. there's so many subspecialties. I want to be clear by sleeper. I mean like a cool specialty that nobody yeah it flies yeah. under the radar. That it, I mean, and it really does. I it wasn't on my radar until I think the first ever episode I was on here. You were talking about the different the different stereotypes of people who go into different things. <laughs> you were talking about the loners who like to be in their dark rooms or you know just alone with a microscope like i've said so many times and i was like wow i'm gonna be a pathologist (laughs) (laughs) and it came to fruition it's perfect way faster than i expected i'm glad Uh, you're having a good time yeah it's it's gonna be a good what 10 more months or so sweet well good plus i get paid yeah big time yeah do all externships get paid yeah 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 from the why do we worry about these things desk of the Shortcoat Podcast News Service. This from the AMA. Bay Health, a Delaware-based health system, is taking a stand against the term provider to describe physicians. I, I didn't know that was necessary, but the AMA agrees, saying that the term provider as is inadequate and urges and they urge physicians to insist on being identified as physicians. Dr. Thomas Vaughn, chief wellness officer at Bay Health, links the term provider to physician burnout. He suggests that the term makes medicine seem transactional rather than relational, which could contribute to burnout among physicians. The term provider dates back to the 1960s. Medicare and commercial insurance companies use it to describe those eligible for payment. And I guess it just became a common way to refer to healthcare people who buy health care to physicians. I'm going to use the term even harder. (laughs) (laughs) And more provider even more now. And more pointedly. It's funny because as you're saying this, I'm trying to like figure out if I myself am like upset. Like this is the first time I'm hearing of this. Like I'm like digging deep. I'm like, does it bother me? Like I I know know a lot about the controversy behind this. Yeah, it It, has nothing to do with the term itself. It has the it has everything to do with the fact that they don't want to be lumped in with other groups because they feel like they should be separate and have a certain status in the medical community yes well i don't think it's necessarily just status but it's what it communicates to patients there's a lot of a lot of patients don't understand what the makeup of a medical team is and like i wouldn't expect patients to understand the hierarchy of medical student resident fellow attending but with that complexity then you add in pas nps all the other providers who patients can see on a regular basis i have to cut that out what to cut that word out providers yeah (laughs) i'm gonna beep out every every use of the word and it creates ambiguity where somebody can walk in and say hi i'm going to be your provider today and but i think but like real talk what patient actually knows the difference between hi i'm gonna be your resident today hi i'm gonna be your pa today they don't know what that means either they just know that you're coming you're providing care that's all they understand about the relationship that's i I would disagree i think that not everyone knows the difference between like physician and pa but there are a good number of people who care and or a good number of people who 
want to have that upfront disclosure and when you start blurring the lines about what our titles are it can create a lot more confusion especially when a large number of people don't understand in the first place i think there's definitely an argument to be made there i'm on your side and i'm on the side of people who want to disambiguate all of the different terms i do get i but like jeff i kind of do get the feeling that this is related to the APP, the advanced practice providers. Well, I'm trying to figure um, out. Notice this, isn't the, because, this isn't the NPs. This isn't the PAs that are pushing for the lack of ambiguity. It's the people at the top of the totem pole who specifically say, I want to make sure that my title is still pre- respected. They'll still lump PAs and NPs together as mid-level providers. Guarantee they'll still use that phrase. I, well, do, I, I think why, there's... why is the debate happening to try to change what PA stands for? Yeah, like there's the debate physician, of the so- physician is yeah. what they would like to be called. Because these titles convey something to patients. Yeah, they do have meaning. And well, for sure. a number of PAs, the physician assistant, a lot of people put the apostrophe S and assume that there's like some kind of ownership. I did for years, and my father was a physician assistant. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that apostrophe S wasn't mm-hmm. there. Well, I'm trying to figure out when people are, I mean, in this debate... Who are they doing this for? So you mentioned that they're doing it because physician burnout is associated with this term provider. And I'm just already, I'm a little, is it? I'm a little hesitant. I'm like, okay, I mean, I get, I get, I get it. it. There's a problem in medicine that has to do with viewing physicians as a provider of a consumable good. Yes. Or a consumable service, I guess. And I agree that viewpoint would make it transactional yeah. rather than emphasizing the relationship between the physician and the patient or yeah, cause I'm trying to, to put broaden myself, that the healthcare worker. And I'm the trying patient. to put myself in the mindset of like whatever this statement was and like, is this because this will better the patient's experience or is this because of the hierarchy and the need to like have that well, the, in some ways status but like there's because that there's the status part and then there's kind of a subset which is the more burnout aspect like yeah, you're saying the, the transactional I, right but i think it's i think it is adjacent if i don't i'm not sure that i buy that it's completely about status i do think it's adjacent to that idea though because you know physicians don't i don't think they really want to be known as I don't know what's the word I'm looking customer for. Customer service. I don't think they want to be like known as people who work with customers as much as they want to have relationships mm-hmm. with people. Yeah. Um, and I those two things th- are mutually exclusive. Like, can you not be in kind of a service industry and also have relationships with people? I don't know. I've never thought of those things as like separate. I think that it's been really, I think it's a really realistic point to say that like in our medical society as it is today it is transactional to some degree yeah, yeah like and, and i don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we provide a service you know like i there are plenty of people that i would have a relationship with that i still am receiving a service from them and they are providing a service to me but i think that i would be more willing to let it go if they said and said let's lean on the actual titles of are these specific fields so pa np physician let's use those more we are still going to try to find an all-encompassing term that isn't provider, that is more relational-based. Instead, they're saying, let's just get rid of anything that puts us in the same box as these other providers, I'm going to use the term, 
and only use the things that put us in individual boxes. But I got it. Why Why do we need to be in the same box? We, because we, we are do, all providing a service. No, we do different things. We have different roles. And so I don't necessarily know why we need one term to refer to multiple different professions. They're different training programs. They end up having different scope. And so you can have a primary, like your primary physician can be well, not physician, but your primary provider could be any of those three that you just listed. But ultimately, there's still different roles. And I think that NPs, PAs, physicians, we should all have pride in what we train to do. And I think we should all take pride in using our title. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So and we I don't, don't need to. We don't need to. We don't need an overarching term for people. I don't think we do. Okay. I would go with medical friend. <laughs> That's what I would go with. Medical friend. Medical buddy. This, yeah. this, medical pal. Is, this is my health pal. Yeah. <laughs> is I mean, it's app? Is it like my health pal? My, like my calorie counting yeah, app? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> it's just a thought. You know, you guys, AMA, Bay Health, you take that and run with I- it. Short Coats, we love to hear from you. No matter what it's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. I might have a thought as to where some of the burnout comes from. There's a lot of like lack of understanding about what goes into training, what is required, the hours that you put in during residency, the hours that you spend studying in med school, missing out on other parts of life. And there's no podcast to listen to about that. And I'm sorry. The, I'm sorry. Good, good point. Good point. There are problems with the curriculum. I would say specifically with NP programs where it's not necessarily what it used to be. It's not seasoned nurses who then go back to school and become an NP. Nurses who are fresh out of school can go into an NP program. There are online degree mills that require like minimal clinical contact and i don't even know where this thought started well it's, it's but, the, but the misunderstanding of the burden that you carried and what you gave up to get to the point that you are to then have somebody who didn't have to do nearly as many of these things saying i am the same as you and i don't think that necessarily means that you want status it's just wanting some kind of recognition or validation that what you did was hard. I think it would be a mistake to ignore that idea. Yeah. I, I, well, and I'd like to push back like just <clears throat> slightly on like just the very last point is I wonder how many of it is coming from the specific NPs or PAs versus how much of it is coming from the way that our insurance structure is set up and the way that our like providing structure is set up and that there is a lot like it is very true to say that like mid-level providers are pushing into areas that used to be only managed by physicians. So I do think that like part of it is like this kind of, I think it's more so from top down maybe than it is from like actual individuals. And maybe I'm wrong and I am not seeing that experience. Like I have a friend who is going through NP school right now and I see the amount of work that it's going Mm -hmm. through. But you're right in that. It's different. Just as there are, there's different rigor in medical schools, there's different rigor in universities, there's different rigor everywhere. No. And not all NP programs are made equal. I think that's the point I'm trying to make, that 
when you look at the ones that really do that really are just degree mills when you compare that to like what we're doing here it can feel kind of belittling yeah hey i i think you know what you said about insurance i think that's probably spot on i mean all of these both of these ideas are probably can probably be laid at the feet of insurance companies who make this into a transactional endeavor when they you know do things like prior authorizations and all this I'm hesitant that- to like make it a thing where it is two cohorts of people going at each other while really it is like the overarching right. heads of state I think state it's, that it's subsets that. it's subsets of those two populations that feel strongly yeah yeah, yeah. And, not everybody carry feels this yeah. because like I think I've talked about this before and I held a different stance a few years ago I didn't feel as strongly as I do now about this separation but my grandma didn't receive her reminder for an appointment and missed it. And she received a letter in the mail from the NP who she saw primarily, who was like rebuking her for missing this appointment, saying, if you're not coming, you're not managing your health. Like it was it was it was a mean letter. And she signed it doctor. She doesn't have a doctorate, which is a whole other thing. People wanting DNPs to be referred to as doctor within a clinical setting. And it left a really bad taste in my mouth that not having the degree, but representing yourself as such, like. So she was she did not have a doctorate of nursing. No kind of doctorate whatsoever, but she was referring to herself as a doctor. That's not. It's yeah. Yeah. I doesn't sound good. I meant to report that, but I didn't have the time or energy, but it left my grandma feeling like really bad as a patient. And I know that doctors can be assholes to their patients, too, but there's, like I was saying, I think we need to take pride in the training we do. And I've seen far too many people say, oh, I'm going to do one of these other pathways because you get to do the same things and it's just less training. And it's absolutely not true. It's it's a completely different scope. I guess so the I'm coming from it from a different point of view. So I've got some past military experience. I don't talk about it a lot, but you talk to anybody in the army, they are a soldier. There are I don't know, several hundred different specializations that you could be going into. And internally, we will make sure that we talk about and recognize those distinctions because we have very different roles, very different responsibilities, very different authorities. But at the end of the day, we have one thing that we always respond to, which is soldier. That That is the overarching group. And we have one overarching mission with that designation. And I think there's some value to that. And that's probably because of that background. That I think that it is important to recognize your individual role, to take pride in your individual role, and to do it with as close to perfection as you can possibly manage. But at the same time, recognizing that you are part of a larger team with a shared mission and I think healthcare providers, healthcare workers, healthcare whatevers, I think we really should find a way to have a box that includes all of us so that we recognize our shared mission and that purpose, that we see each other as compatriots in that effort, not as, I don't know, I don't want to silo us too much. I think I'm. I, I think- want to point out also, though, that this particular discussion, the term provider, having been sort of coined by Medicare, was probably never meant to be used in the way that it's it's now used 
but it is you know somewhat analogous to the idea of that you're talking about like basically it's just a term of art for a bunch of people who work with patients right yeah so yeah i mean if provider is too transactional these days and language changes provider seems too transactional these days i'm all for coming up with a different word i'm not sure what that would be doesn't or, seem like to this, be like it's. it's I think it's, the provider question is really just like a scapegoat for just like a deeper conversation yeah. mm-hmm. too, and so I mean maybe I that's think, the conversation. That well, I think we're all pawns in a game that is by people that are not the providers. Like that's I, in some ways. Yeah, the th- this is a, a proxy issue for the real issue, which is sometimes lack of autonomy. Be, right, we, yeah. we have yeah. lost autonomy in our specialties and our fields, and we are not okay with it. Yeah, and uh, we want to take it back in any way that we can. And I think that this is definitely a conversation around that. Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. In the mid-90s, OB-GYN residencies helped to pilot the Association of American Medical Colleges Electronic Residency Application Service, or ERIS. Eris, this is the time of year when the Eras uh, tour sponsored. This is or Eras, <laughs> Eras, or Eras. I was gonna say, you have to say Eras because sponsored, Eras sponsored, sponsored by, by T Swift, sponsored by Miss Swift. <laughs> Eras is the system that takes in all of the application materials that senior medical students come up with, things like their CV and their personal statements and transcripts and all that kind of stuff. What's the med school equivalent? It's yeah. CAS? AMCAS. AMCAS. It's the yeah. AMCAS, AMCAS of AMCAS. residency. Right. The same company. And then the documentation from the medical school also goes into that. Things like the medical student performance evaluation and I don't know, their photo. I don't know. All <laughs> of that gets... Their glamour shot. Their glamour yeah. shot. All that gets sent over to ERAS and then that information is all given to the directors of programs that these students are applying to for residency in, in, in that year. Except... This year, to the apparent surprise of the AAMC, the OB residencies are jumping ship and starting their own system. Good for them. I, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, they announced this summer their intentions, and the AAMC literally responded that it was surprised and dismayed <laughs> that this was happening. <laughs> One reason for the dismay could be that the AAMC would have made more than $3 million in the 2024-2025 application cycle from OBGYN applicants, according to Brian Carmody at the Sheriff of Sodium.com. That's 2.8% of ARIS revenue, by the way. Mm-hmm. It should be noted that ERAS is the majority, by itself, the majority of the AAMC revenue. I thought that was staggering. Yeah, like... It, it generates more revenue than the organization takes in from the MCAT, AMCAS, and membership dues combined. Yeah. So, I think that's probably one reason why there's some dismay, because I think there's a fear that, you know, other residencies might follow suit. Is it a fear only from AMCAS, though? You're on the inside of residency application a planning. Little. Are you guys stressed? I mean, a little. You do that. I think, okay, so he's in a room near the room I'm where this yeah. conversation happens. <laughs> you yes. meet with students. I sort of like to help through this. I sort of what would be the right analogy? I sort of turn the doorknob a little bit. Okay. <laughs> you like try to open the pickle jar when it's hard to open. Yeah. You make it yeah, easier for the, the next, the next person open. who actually opens yeah. it and goes, "Well, I started it." Yeah. I think one of the cons I saw was that. The current system, you have like pretty set timelines that things happen. And this isn't the first specialty 
to have its own match. Yeah, but what is it? Ophthalmology has its own match. Euro. Well, my understanding is they are still going to have the match, match, though. But it happens on a different timeline. Well, this is still going to be the same match day, was what it was saying, which I thought was Are applications the exact same time as well? I'm not sure about that I don't know all the specifics, but they did say something about, like, the match itself would still be run by the NRMP. Yeah, although... Who knows what the future brings? Which right? I bet I mean, they'll. I bet they'll leave that as well. I mean, so so they're. I think you know they really are trying to. I, I guess the OB programs are really trying to address a couple of problems. You know, program directors are just absolutely friggin' buried in applications every year. You know, most. But what's the average? So like ever, sixty to seventy. Yeah, last year, two thousand six hundred thirteen. OBGYN applicants submitted an average of 63 to 83 applications apiece. Yeah. I was astounded. I mean, by that, that is number. nuts. And, you know, I get it. I know why students do it. They want to have a job when they graduate. And they're told constantly because it's true that, you know, that there is a chance that you might not match. And that's, that would be, that's a big incentive to over apply. I guess the other thing is they've been asking, they had been asking for years for changes to ARIS and the policies that mitigate that pile on. And there were some changes made. I, don't, I get, Maybe it wasn't enough. Or maybe they had already started the process of moving to this thing when by the time ERAS made those changes. So, I, you know, like, and these problems aren't unique to OB. Some problems that those unlucky enough to go unmatched might have to go back to ARIS if they need to apply to a different specialty that still has positions. And OB is super competitive, so there may be zero positions available after the match is done, which means that you'd have to go back to ERAS. And so, that, so, but you're already having to deal with two systems anyway, because dual applicants will have to be used both ERAS and the new system if they want to dual apply to OB and something else. And also, let's face it, any new system will have bugs in it that, you know, every app, you know, every OB applicant is going to have to deal with this. So that's mm-hmm. kind of, annoying. I find this really interesting because I'm not, it didn't fully lay out like, how is it making the job easier for program directors? Maybe it's just like the system itself is going to be easier to review, but are they going to put restrictions on the amount of places? They did not apply? lay that out. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was like, how do we make sure that people still don't apply to 60 to 80 places? And maybe yeah. they're literally going to say like 20 max. Yeah. I mean, this is not happening this year, so we'll have to stay tuned for the next cycle to see what exactly, what restrictions they actually I think one of the apply. hopes is that students will be less inclined to dual apply. Um, one of the struggles this last year with the dual application is, so when you apply to residency, now the new system is you get to signal certain programs. And this is essentially like a ping that lets them know, I'm real interested. I'm not just applying, I'm super applying, which... It's kind of silly. I feel like that's what the application should have been. What's like the dating app equivalent? There's like a it's super like super like, like or yeah. It's the super like on, <laughs> you have to on like Tinder. pay for super likes or something. Exactly. I don't know. I haven't been on dating apps. So. And, and that's the vibe, right? And so you get a certain number, but if you get a certain number per specialty, so if I apply to OB, I get like mm. say ten signals, and I get to super like ten programs, and then I also apply to say Path, then I get to give my ten to Path, so I get twenty instead of ten. And so I think it, one of the hopes is that if it discourages dual applications, I don't have to worry about somebody super liking my program that actually doesn't even want to go into this specialty. That this is worth their backup, you know, because that's hardly fair for anybody. Yeah, right? <clears throat> that's a good point. 
I'm I'm pretty sympathetic to both sides here. I wish, you know, both the student side and the program director side, they're both kind of in a tough spot. I think students do what they have to do or what they feel they have to do to get their jobs. Program directors are just, you know, absolutely slammed. The AAMC is nervous about this. I mean, because I just, in part they would lose revenue, but also they've really spent a lot of time in their minds research, you know, using the data that it would otherwise get for research advocacy work that supports residency programs and and students or applicants so i can kind of see why it's all kind of a big it's all kind of a big mess Does anyone deep dive like deep dove deep dived into how we like got here deep diven diven. yeah how did we get here how did we get to a point of fear how did we get to this point is it the virtual applications like what did how did we get here yeah i mean that's a big part of it you know, like COVID. all of a sudden yeah. you can feel very comfortable saying 60 programs. I don't actually have to fly have to, to, 60 fly to 60 programs. Yeah, programs. COVID yeah. was the big catalyst yeah. for that, I think. Yeah. Um, but this has been building over years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, we talked to Adam in the springtime, right? And we were yeah. talking about 10, Our 12. episode with Adam Rodman in this, this past spring. Yeah. yeah. He was talking, what, 10, 15 years ago when he applied. It was like... I think he, he didn't hold up bo- all fingers on both hands oh for how many programs he applied to. And that was normal. And now, you know, people are you know, 60, 70, 80 programs is normal. Yeah. And uh, it's it's not just COVID that did that. It has been a, I would say a geometric growth, but like it has been something that we could track over time has been going up. So I think at the base for students, it's, I spent a shit ton of money on med school and I'm going to have to pay it off whether I become a doctor or not. If I don't become a doctor because I didn't match, then that's on me because I didn't apply to enough programs or I didn't apply to the right programs or whatever. And so I think that naturally causes you to, you know, increase the number of applica- applications you submit so that it's a more sure thing. Yeah. And one of the things that we've been seeing, which over- I, so, so the other problem, I just want to make sure I put a fine point on it. The cost of medical school. Yes. Is yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. yeah. And this century has seen a market increase in the number of schools which is, I don't think, a bad thing, but it does change the bottleneck from getting into medical school mm. to more getting into residency. And residency at residency <laughs> slots have increased somewhat, but they haven't increased yeah, it's, to the, it's to the extent necessary. Yeah, it's not commiserate at all. It's very, very small increase. I think part of what the whole COVID period, I remember reading some articles at that time, part of the problem it created is that when you had these people start applying to tons of programs, then programs are picking the most competitive applicants. And so that means that less competitive applicants aren't going to be getting as many interviews and you're basically forced to apply to as many places as you can to even be considered when other people are essentially hogging interviews that aren't going to be necessary. Or even interviews that they're not ending up taking. Yeah. yeah. Taking advantage of. It's hard is like it's not even that you just limit the amount of applications people have because in some ways like then you're depending on that person to like apply to the places that they are best fit for or that they are like because I can you can imagine that maybe there is a program A, B and C and A and B are really sought after and C is less sought after and all applicants are just like putting their applications in A and B and not C and then C like it's weird because, yeah, you can't necessarily just say don't apply to as many places because then you're not creating, I mean, in some ways, equity of opportunity for people who are, I would say competitive versus not competitive, but just, yeah. I would also argue, though, that like 
a program that gets having had many friends that have worked in mostly graduate education admissions if you get 3000 applications i am very wary of anybody that says that they give all 3000 applications the same there is holistic. no way there is it's not no possible way they say we we just spread it out over the whole team not 3000 i'm sorry you're not giving them all the holistic deep dive that each application probably deserves you just don't have the time in the year this it's is why possible. yeah this is uh, for this reason alone is one of the things that makes me think, I don't know how important the this medical student performance evaluation that I write for 150 or so people. Well, that's not true. Half of that number. But so anyway. You're not just turning the pickle jar. You're I'm, cracking it. Yeah, I'm cracking it. You're cracking it. Anyway. You hiss. <laughs> the point is like, I have a really hard time believing that some of these programs are able to sift through, an, you know, 3,011 page documents that, you know, it just seems very unlikely. I've been told, well, people regard our medical student performance evaluations highly because they have a lot of good information in them. So I'm happy about that. But I also want to know, like, like I, what I would love to know is, okay, you're using it. But what exactly are you using it for? Yeah. Are you, like, looking at it for just red flags? Are you... Straight up length. It's just, are like, you, how like, much effort was put into it. Like, right. Are you looking at looking just... Looking for, like, a five-syllable word? Like, okay, this is good. Right. <laughs> right. Better check. Like, it's, it's just so hard for me to believe that anybody can crunch this data in... No, there was a subjective, mostly subjective. There was somebody that worked for a program over the summer who got quite a bit of pushback on Twitter. I think probably appropriately so. Twitter is the break room of the world that shouldn't (laughs) be in the public sphere, but is in the public sphere. But I mean, he just straight up admitted and he's not a program director. I will give him that. But this individual works for a residency program and is a part of the application review process. And just admitted i divide the stack in half and i review half of them because that's what i can reasonably get to and it is really unfortunate for the other half but let's be honest all of them are probably decent candidates anyway what's the yeah what's the alternative you sort by you know step two score like yeah and i recognize that, any that better saying the quiet part out loud doesn't endear us to this individual but at the same time like we're all doing something that is just as arbitrary we're yeah i feel like i have a bad idea and i'm gonna yeah yeah bring it. it like straight up this is a bad this is not a good idea <laughs> I bad love, story idea with i Riley. can't wait Let's i can't go. wait for you guys to poke holes in it but like what if medical schools like what if they had to like release students to be able to apply to like certain places. Like it was very much like on the medical school to say like I'm just imagining we're all like in a people. cage and you're like no, release. <laughs> yes. Well, suddenly this is like becoming very dystopian because this is not very good. Because and I like to believe the medical school would rank not just on academics but like other things mm-hmm. where there are tiers of students and maybe there are also tiers of residencies. Again, I know that this is a bad I'm idea. I'm a doctor's I'm, child. I am tier one. Yeah. <laughs> I am trying to this figure out what you're far from like European programs. Like this is more or less how they approach education. I am currently reading the book Red Rising, which is like a Ooh. very old book, but it is based on this like caste system. And I was like, this is again, it's a dystopian book. So this is not necessarily a good idea. But like what if more of the work is shifted toward medical schools to like help guide where people should be applying. Well, I think that's as in like a you are major, actually competitive, therefore you should actually apply to these places. I mean, this is a major effort that that, you know, the deans and the community faculty directors undertake during the summer of the M3 M4 year, which mm-hmm. is talking to students and trying to evaluate that. how trying to help them figure out like, okay, what really should you be aiming for? Never want to say for instance, 
you're absolutely not going to get into this competitive residency or this program that you want. But at the same time, I think you might want to have a backup plan. You know, maybe you want to dual apply. Maybe you want to, you know, but the point is that's a major portion of what they're trying to accomplish with the students. The students have to listen. Yeah, there's the no, students there's actually. No so my system and I, no, I, is essentially you must listen. I mean, yes, <laughs> it's the same thing with a little bit of extra force. Yeah, yes. <laughs> they do the they do the thing where they like pry their eyes open and make them watch the video. Yeah, do I actually like this? No, no. <laughs> no. I see so many problems with it. It has so many problems as far as like academics don't really matter that much. Like, how do you really? It's make really sure like, it would highlight inequalities. It would highlight so inequalities much. so much, and I'm admitting that. So you know what I would love. Uh, so I've been thinking about this a little bit, and you can't just preface this knowing this is a complete impossibility because it overhauls the whole system but i I love it nonetheless we get rid of undergrad like they do in other countries we give six years of medical school plus undergrad right okay i already don't like it Um, with with the option of opting in say you like a bachelor's degree you can opt in to start at the beginning of medical training (laughs) but and then so now we've shaved two years off right those two years mandatory pre or primary care and then you apply to residency, do whatever you want. Same length of training, except for now we've solved a bit of the primary so care giving problem. dental school. And then while you're in your primary care, maybe you just decide this is where I want to stay and you're good. And then that solves a lot of that problem too. But I know that it's too European for a lot of people, but it just, it seems like a good way to avoid the... I just, I hate it every time and I get, it's more cringy every time I hear it. Somebody in my class that I'll ask him, what specialties are you interested in? Invariably, you know, Durham and they'll just start listing basically the return on their investment right and I'm just like you're not all interested in these fields like, like which, you guys are all lying to it's me it's people that you're like which stocks are you investing in they're like Apple like Tesla and it's like what you don't know stock like you're just naming cool things like, yeah <laughs> and to the moon I also don't know stocks so <laughs> We're just over here just begging somebody to give us the job to reevaluate all of med- medical education. Yeah, we, we are. This it. is yeah. half of the podcast. It's just that <laughs> if we, we ran the world, things would be very different. Not yeah. necessarily good, but you know. <laughs> it would be different. It would be different. This seems like a great, I don't know, like economics honor student thesis or something. Like, how do you fix this? I, mean, I don't hey, know. Isn't it like an economics thing? Yeah. That, I mean, hey, the guy, like the guy who made the match algorithm, you know, he did win a Nobel Prize. For I the, stand by that we need more MD, PhD students that are out of the hard sciences and into the soft sciences. Yeah. I thought that true, would do yeah. a lot of good in this world. But yeah. this thing always bothers me so much because it's like I have no good solution. And nobody has a, who's a problem solver. It's yeah. just me out. <laughs> nobody has a good solution f- for it. I kind of do like Jeff's idea, though. Jeff, yeah. you might have the solution that I like the most that I've heard so far. Really? I, like, I mean, I especially like the part where you're sort of required to do primary care for a little while. Yeah. And I want to just say to anybody out there who's never considered this before, most of the world does this. Yeah. Like this is the norm. It's not like it's not like we're trying something new. Yeah. We're just we and, and it's again, it's not like we just uniquely chose the bad option. We our system was built out of the culture that we had in our education system in the United States a hundred years ago. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that it would be nice to maybe borrow something from somebody else that seems to be, you know, knocking it out of the park a little what bit. What is the rest of the world doing in terms of like paying for medical school? It's like most of it is state funded. Love that. For yeah. Me. And that's another <laughs> one of the reasons that I love the idea. Like every time somebody talks about, well, doctors deserve to have six boats. And I'm like, okay, so no, but even, <laughs> even, 
even if that were true, does anyone deserve to have six boats? I just, I'm not. Nobody on, needs six boats. I'm not on board with that. You get one. You're, that's on enough board. boating. Uh, one boat is too many boats in my personal professional. We're gonna have to. Opinion. We're gonna have to check in with Jeff in like 30 years. I guarantee many, you, I won't own a boat. See how many boats Jeff has? I might rent one, but You'll have uh, a yacht. <laughs> I have a boat on my boat. I just feel like if medical education were substantially cheaper, or maybe somehow commiserate to the specialty that you go into we wouldn't have these arms races for derm we wouldn't have these arms races for ortho and we would all of a sudden have more people comfortable in the primary care where we desperately need doctors yeah because the medicine that is going to improve chronic conditions isn't fee-for-service procedures it's relational preventive medicine and we're just not going to get it as long as somebody is chasing that i have to pay out this four hundred thousand dollars in debt it's just it can't happen and then I'm not blaming the student. Well, it's all part of a big it's all part of a big system that yeah. that we have, for better or for worse, come up with. And yeah. maybe we should. We always end s- with we hate the people at the top and we don't even know who they are. I know. <laughs> Whoever you are running the system, yeah. just put me in charge. Yeah. I'll take. It. I got you. <laughs> well, that's our show. Jeff, Riley, Nicole, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks, Happy to be here. Thanks. And what kind of annoyance would it be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us part of your week? If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube. Show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Capmosphere. I'm Dave Hitler saying don't let the bastards get you down. I'm going to try. <laughs> don't let the bastards get you down. <laughs> Bye, nerds. Talk to you one week. <laughs> talk, talk to you one week. Talk to you one week. You Why this, use many words when few words do trick? <laughs>